Welcome back to Gray Matters, the podcast of the Seaboard and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Jace Lington. This episode is another discussion from our recent conference on the future of Chevron deference. First, we will hear from Judge Douglas Ginsburg of the D.C. Circuit, introducing our panelists. Um, Well, you all have been here, I hope, all day. Uh, I just came from court, so I don't know what has been said. Therefore, you should not refrain from repeating things that other people have said. (laughs) All right, we're going to hear first uh, this afternoon uh, from Caroline Seacott. Her credentials are in your program. Uh, We're going to then move to uh, Professor Emily Hammond, and then finally to Don Elliott of uh, both the Yale and Scalia Law faculties. And after we've heard from each of them, uh, relatively briefly, there'll be some crosstalk, and we're going to open it up for questions, so note your questions as we go along. Um, Caroline. Perfect. Okay, so thank you for having me here. It's been such a great conference. Um, Surprisingly, I'm not tired. I'm very energized at this moment with all this great conversation that happened before. So I was talking about this with Emily before about whether this expands what I want to say and contracts. So because of everything that's been said before, I'm going to try to focus my remarks on the things that I either haven't been said to not be repetitive or things that maybe I disagree with with some of the panelists. But please don't leave with the feeling as if I'm mostly disagreeing with everyone. Um, I agree with uh, tons of what's been said before. It's terrific panels. So three comments that I want to uh, draw out in my uh, opening remarks. One is I want to say something against the carve-out, which is part of the issue that uh, the court took cert on. So this might be thought of as a compromised position, so it might be attractive to the court. And there's been lots of scholars, some that are here in the room, who have written really wonderful commentary about different kinds of carve-outs that occur. But this one in particular, um, I think would be worse than getting rid of Chevron entirely, or at least that's how I view it, and I'll make some arguments there. The second point, um, I want to bring in the environmental context. So a lot of what we've talked about uh, or heard about today was about Chevron in the abstract and sort of divorced from the Loper-Bright specific context. Um, I think that context is really rich. I think also illuminating uh, itself, so I'll bring it in. But also, in general, the environmental context, and I know some of my co-panelists will also talk about this, is an area where a lot of this uh, could really matter. We have lots of trade-offs. We have need for flexibility quick changing facts on the ground and the context itself, just expertise about the history of these different sectors could uh, also resolve a lot of perceived silences or ambiguities. And then third, I want to talk about a little bit the actual question in this case, which is the question of the funding. I'm going to actually give a shot at arguing that maybe the agency should win at Chevron step one. And so I already heard someone crying, so I know this is not going to be popular. I mean, controversially, I'll also use uh, historical context, but also legislative history. Uh, So all this to say... to say, you might not be persuaded by anything that I say, um, but that it's unambiguous at step one, but maybe you're persuaded that it is ambiguous. Or at least you might be persuaded that it doesn't raise an inference that the agency does not have the authority to do what it did uh, in this case, that it doesn't raise that inference of lack of authority. Um, And I'll consider that being somewhat successful at that stage. Okay, so we've heard a lot about the original Chevron decision. We even had um, some quotes up there. So unanimous Supreme Court acknowledged, um, specifically mentioned that it wants to accommodate competing interests. Uh, Congress might not specifically resolve every relevant question. 
it might, Congress might leave a silence and it might be intentional. The silence was actually left to the agency due to the agency's relative expertise or its lack of constituency pressure or the silence might be there inadvertently. But in any event, and this is a quote from the opinion for judicial purposes, it matters not which of these things occurred according to the court. So already now, this is not true. Um, at this stage. This is before any decision in Loper Bright. So now, uh, as we've heard from other panels, if the question is major, the court recently declared that congressional silence will not suffice to authorize an agency to decide how to re accommodate recognized competing interests. After West Virginia v. EPA, Congress may, must either explicitly allow the agency to make this call or decide the matter on its own. And in the absence of that kind of explicit authority to make that decision, the agency cannot decide these kinds of major questions. Now in Loper Bright, the court is taking up a, a question about whether one to overrule Chevron, which has been the focus, uh, which would end judicial deference outright, or or to further narrow the application of Chevron, but this time uh, to statutory silence concerning controversial powers expressly but narrowly granted elsewhere in the statute. Uh, that does not it, not, it does not constitute an ambiguity requiring deference to the agency. So this option builds on uh, a history of narrowing or clarifying Chevron and other deference doctrines, again, uh, viewed as a compromise position. Uh, lots of interesting proposals in this space, so including, as mentioned before, carving out adjudications, immigration, criminal context, and others. Um, but my contribution to Symposium argues that this particular form of narrowing Chevron's applicability is not a compromise, and in fact, depending on the details, could be worse than overturning Chevron. I argue that it's essentially unprincipled, that any ambiguity could be reframed as silence about some question uh, that you can introduce. And again, this is in the context of a non-major one, so really any minor question. And some silence is frankly inevitable due to Congress's relative lack of uh, technical expertise, and the context of Loper Bright is a perfect example of this. And then this particular silence, which is based on an express but narrow authorization elsewhere in the statute, um, the issue is presented as whether Chevron should apply. But if you read the petitioner's brief, it shows that there's more to this. The petitioner suggests that such silence regarding a power expressly and narrowly granted elsewhere should in essence give rise to an inference that the agency is not allowed to do this at all, not just an argument that Chevron doesn't apply. Um, that is, the argument for not applying Chevron is the same as the argument for the not also not agreeing with the agency doing this or having uh, this power. And that's that move, subtle, is more like makes us more like West Virginia v. EPA, but for every Thing. Um, and it's more, its impact would be greater than denying Chevron deference altogether and doing more work. And I'll talk a little bit about the other kinds of uh, solutions. And because it would apply for any non major issue that could be invented, um, it would also mean less likelihood, because it's a non-major issue, that Congress will step in and clarify uh, than is the case for major questions, which means that mistakes would be less likely to be corrected, and then the consequences could actually be greater despite it being more minor questions. And the context of Loper-Bright fisheries management is again a perfect illustration of this. Because now it matters why Congress might have been silent. So, like I mentioned, I took a deep dive into the legislative history of the Magnuson-Stevens Act, uh, especially the hearings surrounded its, uh, surrounding its reauthorization in 1989. That's because the 1990 amendments created this silence in this case that the case is focused on. So the original version of MSA required observers on board foreign vessels and required the vessels to pay for these observers. For domestic vessels, uh, regional councils had the authority to make fisheries management plans and then to amend them, amend them as necessary to protect the fish stocks. Now the problem of common pool resources such as fish stocks, uh, according to economic perspective, is that participants acting in their own self-interest uh, will overfish, destroy the stock, so regulation can come in, can prevent this by setting quotas or something like that. But here's the key part, to do this effectively, 
the regulators need lots of information and accurate data. So data has to be accurate, has to be comprehensive, has to be current, has to be on the ground, responsive to any stressors in the fisheries that can come from both environmental factors and overfishing forces. There's a story about the cod fishery that I probably need to sort of skip, but basically the council, the relevant council, delayed implementing the quotas that it thought were that were recommended because of concern to the effects on communities, fisheries communities, and guess what? The fishery collapsed the next year. And scientists going back to this point have found that if they had implemented the original quotas, the fishery would likely have not collapsed. So in the late 70s, 80s, the fisheries were, that were at risk were dominated by foreign vessels. So the observer requirement on foreign vessels did a lot of the work on gathering the data that the regulators needed to set these quotas. But over time, the industry became more domestic and information plummeted and then fish stocks were seriously at risk. This problem was especially acute in the North Pacific Fisheries Management Council area. In January 1989, the council, in fact, reported to Secretary of Commerce that it simply did not have enough information to do its job under the statute. That June, this is again 1989, while hearings were already taking place in front of Congress for the reauthorization, the council made a bold move. It required domestic observers and it told the industry they had to pay for them. 100% coverage on vessels over 125 feet, 30% coverage on smaller vessels. The vessels would be chosen by lottery and then whoever got chosen pays all of it. Okay, if they didn't like this, and here I'm actually, I took the minutes, I just printed them. And if they don't like this, they need to go to Congress. So this is what they said in the minutes. Some council members expressed concern over funding for the program. Don Collinsworth suggested that the industry should go to Congress asking for a special appropriation of 100% funding for the first year in order to get the program underway and then declining appropriation for the next two years with the goal of having the program totally industry funded by maybe the fourth year. So that's from the minutes of what was going on. In August, so just shortly, a few months after this, uh, hearings were taking place in the area of the North Pacific and the industry did come before Congress and they lobbied hard for a change. A big reason why they didn't like what happened before the council was because they thought it was not fair that who got chosen among the small fisheries to have that observer now had a competitive disadvantage and there should be some fairer way and Congress should step in. So in August 1989, Congress had this hearings. Now for me, a notable silence was the silence related to the council's actions. And council members again and industry were all before the, the Congress. Nowhere did I see anyone argue that the council was not empowered to do this. What was expressly discussed was the ambiguity in the statute about whether if the council wanted to make this more fair and spread the costs around, if they could do something like a user fee in this case. Um, and maybe there was some language. Industry also argued that it'd be great if taxpayers would chip in because you know what, they benefit somewhat too. But that was met with equal arguments saying that industry should bear this as a cost of business. So I'm about to get really pulled off the stage here. <laughs> so um, I guess I'll just end with, uh, I'll just end there. And anything else I'll have to say, I'll say later. But thank you. <laughs> Emily? All right. <laughs> Um, well, thanks so much. I've, um, my mind is swimming with all of the um, uh, discussion already today. Um, I thought I would make a few points. One is I just have a, 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 a thing I want to flag as a practical matter from the standpoint of energy and environmental law. Um, but then I'll go into um, sort of more traditional points um, where I'd like to really focus on expertise um, and what it is, what we mean by deference to expertise, um, and what we might look forward to in the future, um, and what we might push for as, as scholars, advocates, and judges. Um, so just the, the practical point I'd like to make. We, we have heard a lot today about um, the destabilizing impact of this uncertainty um, around Chevron, um, not to mention um, how the major questions doctrine um, will be applied in the future. And I just want to point out for, um, for the climate change imperative, for the kinds of investments we need at the intersection of energy and environmental law, um, we need some stability. 
Um, and the thing that I'm worried about is we don't have a lot of time to wait on that stability. Um, and, and although um, I think we might be able to predict more stability in the future once we kind of get through this phase that we're in and we know how things look, um, investors are looking to make decisions um, that, uh, that require stability now. Um, so uh, uh, my co-author Jim Rossi and I have, have written about stranded costs and grid carbon decarbonization, for example. Um, so I just wanted to say we're, we're in a time frame where timing matters um, for the substantive area that we're talking about. Okay, um, so moving on to expertise. Um, I will say a little bit first about, about what it is. Um, we've heard a number of conceptualizations of it today, and, and I do have um, quite a bit of agreement with some of the, the concepts. Um, it's used very loosely in administrative law. It's under-theorized in the judicial opinions that we see, and um, we certainly see a, a wide variety of ways that courts treat it um, in the case law. Um, it might mean general familiarity with administering a statute. It might mean unique expertise because of being present for the statute's original impl implementation. Um, it might be the kind of policy-laden expertise that was at issue in Chevron itself. Um, it might also be the sort of comparative institutional competence expertise um, that we see regarding scientific and technical matters, um, particularly emblematic in the, the Baltimore uh, gas decision um, from the Supreme Court. Um, we also see kind of a mishmash of these things all put together, and a great example of that is Justice Kagan's plurality decision in Kaiser versus Wilkie, where she has a, a huge paragraph that goes through these kinds of expertise, but doesn't really say anything about how we're supposed to use them um, or what they mean. And I submit that expertise is really a combination of all of these things. Um, what agencies do so well is bring those subject matter experts to bear um, on very complicated, especially scientific and decision, uh, technical decisions, especially in environmental and, and uh, energy law. But those those are not just scientists and engineers. Of course, they're economists. They're um, political scientists, they're the lawyers, um, they're all of the people who look at what the statute means but also provide a lot of information about how to actually carry out um, Congress's purposes in implementing the statute. I want to say Liz Fisher and Sid Shapiro have written an excellent book um, really detailing and, and building up this robust account of what expertise means. Um, and I think it's consistent with what we heard from Paul Ray earlier today, this idea that um, it's, it's very rich. It's not a thin um, idea of somebody just counting beans or taking water samples. Um, there's a lot more that goes into an agency bringing its expertise to bear on something. Um, so I make this point for a few reasons. The first one is internal to the agencies are legitimizing norms for how that expertise um, is brought to bear in making ultimate decisions. Some of those are professional norms. Um, some of those are the kinds of norms we heard about from Paul Ray earlier, the idea that um, various subject matter experts have various points at which they have to justify and explain um, what it is they're bringing to the particular problem at issue. So we also have, of course, the expertise of synthesizing all of this, um, this material. And those processes internal to agencies help support um, transparency, accountability, the kinds of things that we look to for legitimacy in the administrative state. Um, and then that moves me to my second um, point, which is, well, what do we mean by deference um, to expertise? And here I will depart a bit from the Chevron framework because um, this idea of expertise being something to consider in the level of deference that a court gives pervades um, administrative law generally. As you all know, it's not limited to Chevron. And this is also true if we think about step two of Chevron being somehow merged with arbitrary and capricious review. Um, I think it's also true if we take um, Professor Bressman's um, conception, which I, I agree very much with, um, that hard look review, the sort of classic arbitrary and capricious approach is a place where we might see a lot of these battles um, shift. So 
Um, I'll start with just a few words about that Baltimore gas decision. This is the, the super deference idea um, that courts should be at their very most deferential when agencies are uh, making decisions in light of scientific or technical uncertainty. Um, I have a prior paper where I have done a huge um, review of that case and its history. And um, bottom line is the court actually never relied on it again for that principle. Um, and uh, in the lower courts, although you see quite a lot of citation um, of Baltimore gas, um, overall, and there's, there's lots of fluctuation, um, a lot of the decisions that cite Baltimore gas for super deference actually engage in an analysis that looks a lot like traditional hard look review. Um, and I think this is beneficial. Um, so we heard earlier this idea that, well, if agencies are, are able to communicate their expertise internally, they ought to do it um, for the courts. Well, they do. Um, that's the record. This is something that's required as a matter of administrative law already. Um, so I think what we can be asking is for that to translate into the briefing um, that the parties you know, bring to bear and what the court will do. And I think we should be looking for courts to really engage how the agency exercised its expertise. Now, I want to be clear, um, I still advocate for deference in the sense of State Farm, not substituting the judgment for that of the agency. In any particular decision, we could disagree or agree about whether that has happened. But as a principle, um, I think that's right with this idea that there should be some judicial engagement. And there's a few reasons for that as well. Um, one is it reinforces those internal norms um, of legitimizing practices that we already have within the agencies. Second, it promotes accountability um, both for the agency by providing a, a generalist description um, of the kinds of things that the agency uh, considered um, and for um, all of the other um, individuals and institutions that are interested in what the agency is doing. It also helps legitimize the courts. And I think Tom Merrill um, made a, a point um, earlier about judicial legitimacy. Um, it helps us show what the courts are doing. Um, I think it undermines judicial legitimacy to, um, to either be too deferential or um, to be so deferential that they're not even engaging. Um, so uh, let me just say um, one more word coming back to Caroline's point about the, the carve-out. So I'll bring it back um, to Chevron in general. And here, um, at, at great risk perhaps, um, I, I want to bring up um, a recent DC Circuit case that Judge Ginsburg, you actually authored, Maine Lobstermen's Association um, versus National Marine Fisheries Service. So this involved the service's biological opinion regarding the endangered species um, of the right whale and essentially a plan that would uh, impose a number of restrictions on um, lobster fisheries. A very um, detailed procedural chicanery before it got to that substantive question. Um, but here the service um, was missing some data about um, the, the impacts of survival um, on the right whale. And it made some assumptions that were precautionary. It essentially said, we're going to fill those gaps, those data gaps, um, with, uh, with the idea that we're going to be as um, uh, careful as we can with respect to putting in presumptions that would favor um, the species survival. And they said this is something that the um, legislative history of the Endangered Species Act um, suggests we do. Um, the court's analysis, um, I think, did engage um, quite well with the agency science, but it also um, hinted at, a, at sort of a backdooring of um, this idea that if the statute is silent, um, maybe we won't, um, maybe we'll construe it against agency authority, citing. Um, sort of this idea that the, the agency was asking for an aggressive reading of Chevron, one that would allow it to fill that gap, um, citing the, um, the DC Circuit decision of Loper Bright, um, and ultimately concluding that the statute was silent as to whether the agency could adopt a precautionary principle. Um, and so in this example, it, it couldn't. And I think there's a lot of nuance there that I'm, I'm probably not capturing. But what I'm, what I'm worried about 
um, is the many environmental and energy law statutory schemes where agencies are asked uh, to make decisions um, and they very frequently um, find it is best aligned with the policy of the statute to make a precautionary assumption. Um, and we see this, um, of course, all of the time in EPA decision making. Um, Whitman versus American Trucking Association was just such a case. Um, if we start construing those kinds of decisions as statutory silence and we start also saying um, that those need to be construed against the agency operating in this particular way, um, then I think we're going to see significant upsetting of a lot of expectations um, that we have about um, how energy and environmental law operate. Um, and so I'm going to um, add on uh, to Caroline's caution that that, uh, that carve out in Chevron, uh, or I'm sorry, in the, the Loper Bright cert question um, is hopefully not a direction that we'll go. So I'll stop there. Um, I know Don has more to say about some of these things too. Yes, um, so I will certainly uh, wait to hear what, uh, what Don has to say uh, before venturing even so much as a thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to, uh, to be here and uh, I think pretty much everything that can be said has been said throughout the day, so I won't, I won't go on for too long. Uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge uh, wrote in 1819 that every reform will be carried to extremes and will become the instance for further reform in the next generation. And that seems to me to be what's going on uh, in, in Chevron. I side with uh, the people on the first panel, uh, in, including uh, Tom, Tom, Tom Merrill, who uh, said we should amend, not end Chevron. But I think if we were to end Chevron, uh, part of my point would be it really wouldn't change things that, that much. I think there'd still be uh, deference to uh, administrative constructions of statutes for some of the reasons that I'll talk about. I think some of the abuses of Chevron have been the use by agencies to try to uh, expand their authority. And therefore, I, I think uh, decisions like the Major Questions Doctrine and West Virginia versus EPA are, are useful correctives to misuses or carrying Chevron too far. On the other hand, uh, what I perhaps uniquely can, can bring to the conversation is the uh, experience of having been uh, inside an agency. I was general counsel of EPA in the late 80s and early 90s when the agency was really just first adapting itself to Chevron. And at, at that time, uh, typically we, we had this, I think, legal fiction that a statute was a sort of magical code of instructions by Congress as to how to answer every question that came up. And in fact, I think Chevron fundamentally reconceptualized the notion of uh, a statute. And it, it, I think, took a more realistic view that Congress didn't have an intention, certainly not a majority that was enacted on most of the questions that come up uh, under uh, in the implementation uh, stage. And so I think the important issue with regard to Chevron is how to handle these implied delegations. And what Chevron does, I think, is it, um, uh, as Jonathan Major said in the prior uh, panel, creates a kind of policy space that's defined by the limits of the language. And the question is if there are multiple potential interpretations within that policy space that are all consistent with the language of the statute, uh, which, which is a better way to decide? Is it better to have the agency make that decision and then have that be reviewed by a, by a, by a court? Uh, or is it better for courts to make that decision for themselves based on the statutory canons of construction and, and other techniques? I've had a uh, many year long uh, conversation and disagreement with my colleague at Yale, Bill Eskridge, who's one of uh, Virginia Norse's uh, colleagues. He's, he's bit, uh, uh, in favor of uh, having judges make those decisions uh, uh, rather than, uh, uh, than, than agencies. I think agencies should make them in the first instance, but I agree completely with Paul Ray 
that um, th the decision makers within agencies should convey their expertise to the courts so the courts can review them. That's what I thought the step two process of determining whether or not the agency's interpretation was reasonable was supposed to be about, is the agency con conveying to the court its reasons for adopting one permissive uh, interpretation as opposed to another. And I think what's been overlooked in a lot of the um, dialogue about Chevron is it, 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 it talks a lot about the relationship between the courts and administrative agencies. What's been overlooked is the dynamic within agencies. Uh, and when I came to EPA in the late 80s, uh, the lawyers in uh, the Office of General Counsel were, were running the agency. They were basically telling all the program offices of the uh, so-called subject matter experts what they could and couldn't do by way of interpreting the, the statute. And Chevron changed that in a way that I think was fundamentally very healthy and I hope isn't lost. Well, what if uh, Chevron were to be overruled? I don't think it would be uh, an earth-shaking change. Uh, there's a case that hasn't been mentioned that I learned about in administrative law in law school. It's called Hearst versus NLRB, decided by the Supreme Court in 1960. And the question there was whether or not newspaper salespeople on the street were employees or independent contractors. And the Supreme Court upheld the notion that the NLRB could designate them as employees under Democrat administrations and exempt them from NLB protection uh, in Republican administrations. In other words, that Congress had, by not defining the term, had delegated that question to the agency, and as long as it had a reasonable basis, its decisions could be uh, uh, upheld in either, either direction. Congress always has the opportunity of defining some of these vague terms, and I think the idea in Chevron that it's an applied delegation if Congress has chosen not to define a term uh, and has given the agency rulemaking, uh, rulemaking authority. The correct reading of Chevron, and I admit that on the same page there are two different phrases, but I think we've spent too much time talking about ambiguity. The other language in Chevron, which I think is more useful, is did Congress make a conscious policy decision on this issue? And everyone agrees if Congress made a conscious policy decision on this issue, uh, that's binding on the agency. Tom Merrill mentioned earlier in the Chevron case uh, uh, itself, there was a definition of stationary source, but it only applied to one program. It only applied under one section of the statute. Nobody ever thought that in the section to which it applied uh, that the agency was free to adopt the, the bu bubble policy as opposed to the statutory definition, which was very specific that a uh, stationary source was a, was a release point. Well, what would happen if Congress did overrule uh, uh, the uh, Chevron decision? I think the, the uh, main Lobsterman case uh, by, by Judge Ginsburg is a, is a very good example. Uh, he was dealing with the Endangered Species Act. Um, I, I don't agree with Emily that it was a case of statutory silence. There was pretty specific statutory language there that said the agency had to make a determination that the elimination of the species was likely. And I believe that that uh, language was really crucial and distinguishes that case from many of the EPA uh, statutes. Um, a former head of science at EPA, Paul Gilman, uh, once said the, the purpose of risk assessment at EPA is to make sure that the agency never underestimates a risk to public health. Uh, that makes a certain, that makes a certain uh, sense from, a, from an EPA uh, perspective given its, uh, given its mission. But I think that if we overrule Chevron, uh, what will happen is there will be a lot of case-by-case -case litigation in front of judges, uh, focusing particularly on the extent to which agencies, particularly the EPA, is permitted under its statutory language to adopt precautionary uh, approaches. And I, for one, think that um, courts will not do as good a job of answering that question as agencies do, but subject to uh, judicial review. And I think the real problem with, uh, with, with Chevron has been 
that the stage two reasonableness review has not been searching enough. Agencies should be required to state clearly, the, as Paul Ray said, the grounds for their uh, policy interpretations uh, and judges should review them uh, under, ages, under uh, uh, arbitrary and capricious and hard look review. Thank you, that's it, I finished early. Though. Yes, you did, you, you have one minute left. Um, well, thank you, thank you, John. Um, before we go on, I'll just say about the Lobsterman's case. I'm, I've seen quite a number of cases since then and been deeply involved in records, so I don't have a complete command of it, but my recollection is that a turning point, or a, a crucial point in the case as to some of it at least, it was to the precautionary part, was that um, the, the agency itself had repudiated that in a prior instance. So first they were relying on legislative history to that effect, and then later on uh, repudiating it, and then coming back to it. And uh, that, that created a bit of a hurdle for them, for their claim of expertise. And I think that's quite different than the Labor Board uh, situation, with which, I, with which I agree with Don. The Labor Board was created when the labor board was created, the River Rouge plant was it was being occupied by the nascent uh, UAW uh, adherents. There was violence in the streets, and the board's charge was to to make all of that into a into a uh, a legal proceeding in which the lawyers would speak instead of the people on the street or in the in the occupied. And it did it. And uh, Julius Getman's book, The Myth of Labor Board Expertise in 1972, I think it was, documents the way in which, with regard to electoral campaigns, what Don described happens with regularity every four or five years when the uh, board changes, and they make a different presumption about the likely reaction of workers as to whether something is or is not coercive. That's what, I think that's their job, <laughs> to manage conflict. Uh, and we've got these irreconcilable positions. The quadrennial election governs it. Not a, not a terrible thing. <laughs> um, Caroline, you want to have a crack at one of your colleagues? <laughs> <laughs> I'm good on that front. Um, I do want to actually, well, I want to, actually, yes, I'll say something. Um, because, uh, because, you know, I spent a lot of time talking about Chevron, but Chevron's a doctrine that I, you know, I like it for the reasons that, you know, I, I, guess, I, I guess I'd be a judicial conservative by how uh, it was uh, outlined. I like it for the reasons of leaving policy decisions elsewhere. I like it for the reasons of cons uh, um, cons uh, consistency. Um, but one thing that always bothered me about Chevron, at least how it's been applied, is exactly that point, Judge, that you make, the step, and Don and Emily too, the step two analysis that has not been historically rigorous. And so it leads to a potential oscillating um, feature that doesn't seem tied to expertise, and that's when a lot of folks start to get uncomfortable because the other rationales for Chevron deference seem uh, have some other problems associated with. So I just want to paint the picture of a world where, uh, which is something I agree with, I've argued for this in other cases, where arbitrary, uh, just talking a little more about arbitrary and capricious review. So if that happens on, so to the extent that a court does not think that an agency applied the expertise that it has to potentially bear on this question, um, that's, that's, that's what arbitrary capricious review is. And that could be very easily combined in that, or explicitly made to be combined in that second analysis. And already the court has made some steps towards it by announcing in various ways that there shouldn't be deference to a reasoning that's a result of, that's a result of an interpretation that's a result of arbitrary and capricious uh, reasoning. Um, but what's, um, What's interesting, what's important about doing it this way though, is that this isn't wrapped in, this is distinct from de novo because it doesn't enshrine any particular point of view on what is a policy question that needs to be informed by expertise. It means that the agency is not foreclosed from coming back to it and actually looking at the evidence that it has on this issue or changing it if facts change on the ground. So I think it is a vehicle that better expresses some of these concerns about uh, expertise and flexibility. And if courts 
uh, force agencies to apply expertise, you don't have that policy oscillation issue. Um, I think it would result, and I've argued this, in stability, um, except when we wouldn't want stability, which is when, again, facts on the ground have changed, and there's a reason to reject the prior approach because of new scientific findings or anything else that would be a reasonable re reason to change an interpretation or its application. Um, so thank you. Just, well, I just wanted to, to, um, to thank you for pointing out that, that aspect of the, the Lobsterman's case. What was interesting to me, and I'll respond as well to, to Don's point here too, is that um, I think that the agency's oscillation without explaining itself alone was grounds um, for, for remanding the decision. And that's why I was so intrigued by this language that talked about um, the version of Chevron where silence gives an agency wide latitude um, has um, fallen into desuetude is, is the language here. And, and so at least in this part of the opinion, just reading it on the surface, it, it looks as though um, in response to the agency's argument that it's um, it's operating within scientific uncertainty and it's appropriately um, making a, a, a presumptive choice, um, that, that then that is characterized as a, um, an argument about statutory um, uh, silence. And, and here's where, Don, yes, of course the, there's, there's the not likely to jeopardize language in the Endangered Species Act and we have different language um, in a number of the other environmental statutes, but I don't know, does, it, this goes back to Victoria's point, what's the best interpretation? Does not likely to jeopardize um, mean that being precautionary is the best interpretation or not? Um, and so, or is it silence, right? People could disagree about that. So um, I just wanted to, um, maybe one other thing. I also um, have served in, uh, in an agency just recently. I was um, an appointee in the Biden administration at the Department of Energy. And um, I, I just want to maybe respond to some earlier comments today. The conversation was constantly, what is the best interpretation of the statute? Obviously, um, that is going to be influenced by the various viewpoints of all of the people um, considering that question, some of whom um, perhaps preferred interpretations from the prior administration. Uh, that actually made a really great um, area for experimenting and playing off ideas and really making the rationales that we did put forth, I think, a lot stronger. Um, but it, it, that certainly was always the question that we were asking. Yeah, I'd like to pick up on this. I, I think that one of the lessons here is that all of these cases are really context specific. Um, and they are very much influenced by the language of the particular statute, but, but also the interpretation history. That's, that's the State Farm decision. That right. Certainly if an agency changes its interpretation without uh, adequate uh, justification. I guess what I would say is that um, the Chevron framework can be applied by a, a diligent judge in a way to ask the right questions. Uh, but it's also very tempting to judges who are somewhat lazy uh, to okay. simply simply rubber stamp at at uh, at Chevron step two. Yeah. Um, and I I think that if there's going to be a, a, an amending or a, a clarification of Chevron, uh, I would hope it would be more in the direction of what Chevron step two should uh, should look like to make it make it real review of the agency's justification for adopting the interpretation that it adopts. I think we all agree that uh, if, if we are able to determine from standard materials uh, that Congress made a conscious policy decision on this issue, uh, that, that that's binding on both the agency and the courts. There's really no debate about that. The difficulty becomes, what do we do in situations where Congress either didn't think of the problem, or if it did think of the problem, it wasn't able to reach a majority uh, consensus on how to uh, solve it, but it delegated it to the agency. And where agencies are dealing with delegated uh, ambiguities in the, in the statute, I think the idea of letting the agency make the decision in the first instance 
state the grounds that justify its uh, policy decision to adopt one interpretation as opposed to another. I think that's, but have it be subject to uh, rigorous judicial, judicial review in the same way that other discretionary actions by agencies are subject to judicial review. I think that's a fine template. I think the real problem with Chevron is it, uh, it, it, it tempts judges to sometimes make that uh, second stage uh, a rubber stamping, uh, just as I think Baltimore Gas and Electric does, e even, even worse. I have a, a little article for the Gray Center about uh, abolishing what I call no-look judicial review, <laughs> as opposed to super-deference. I think the idea of, uh, of, of uh, super-deference is kind of uh, in incoherent, because uh, deference uh, is, is basically the idea uh, that uh, I sometimes say to my administrative law classes, deference is the right to be wrong as long as, uh, as far as the court sees it, it's the right to be wrong as long as you're wrong reasonably. Well, do you disagree then with the proposition that um, often cited, but in fact it looks just like ordinary uh, hard look review? Yeah, I do. I do. Is I, that your I, point? I'm. I'm. I, I have uh, spent some time trying to find a case uh, since Baltimore Gas and Electric where uh, EPA or other agencies in the environmental area have been reversed for lack of factual support in a rulemaking. And I've been unable to find them. And I've consulted with several other people, and they're unable to find them. So I do think that Baltimore Gas and Electric uh, has, has tempted many judges who find themselves uncomfortable dealing with scientific questions to simply say, well, that's a scientific question. I don't need to go there. I don't need to review it. So I don't have any uh, uh, statistical evidence of that. I did do a statistical study earlier before the uh, uh, the one that was referred to earlier and, and was able to see a significant, uh, statistically significant effect from Chevron. I haven't done that with regard to Baltimore Gas and Electric, but just impressionistically, uh, I, I don't think that, um, and, and I just was at a conference earlier this, uh, earlier this, this, this week uh, among a number of scientists who were talking about some of the uh, PFAS regulations which are 100,000 times more stringent in the United States than they are in other countries around the world. Uh, I, I don't think judges uh, are doing a very good job of really looking at the at looking at scientific records and making uh, uh, informed uh, decisions as to whether or not agencies have abused their. Uh, authority. I think it's it's sufficient to simply clothe an agency conclusion in in scientific terminology, which is what I call pseudoscience, uh, and that will typically get you uh, an affirmance. That's my perspective. That's what happened in Whitman. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I'm glad I finally fomented a disagreement, even of nature. Um, You're good at that, Judge. But I think, I think Don, your perspective is very much informed by your having worked in, in one of the agencies, the EPA, a scientific agency, probably the most sophisticated scientific agency we have, apart from the pure science agencies like you know, uh, NIH or something like that. And. Um, that gives you a window into the process that judges just don't have. And unfortunately, as you said, briefs don't bring it out. The one thing that ever, ever really gives us insight into the internal process is if the, it's a collegial uh, decision-making body and there's a dissent. That is very yeah. revealing. Not always successful by any means, usually not, but it gives a, a, a much better perspective on the internal workings of the agency. I, I think one of the differences, uh, and you may have missed the keynote speech by Paul Ray. I did, unfortunately. But I think one of the differences between the review of uh, discretionary decisions that takes place in the executive branch, and I was EPA's liaison to the Office of Information and, and uh, Regulatory Affairs, or, or IRA, and participated in those discussions for the, for the agency. The difference between that and arguing a case in the D.C. Circuit, which I've also done, I was a law clerk on the D.C. Circuit, uh, is typically in these technical and highly controversial rulemaking cases, the court requires a, a lead brief and then allocates an hour for oral argument. Now, sometimes it expands it to two hours or three hours, but that results in, in a rulemaking case where there may be hundreds of issues that counsel have to prioritize 
uh, the issues that uh, they're going to they're going to highlight. And I think that issues of uh, scientific uh, review uh, often get excluded from getting proper emphasis uh, in, in, in oral argument or in the briefs precisely because of this, uh, uh, I think, ill-conceived language uh, uh, from Baltimore Gas and Electric. Interesting. Well, um, we have some time that we've tried to reserve and, and succeeded for questions from the audience. So despite the fact that there are bright lights in my eyes, Michael Griever shines even more bright. I think that bright. violates the uh, <laughs> Americans with Disabilities Act. Yeah. Oh, whoa. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, Mike Grieva, um, this is not just to the three or four of you, uh, but throughout the day I've been struck by this consensus that, you know, the remedy and to Chevron, whatever may be wrong with it is, let's have really, really hard look review and maybe even State Farm is not enough. Maybe we should sort of park a flatbed truck outside the courthouse and say, Judge, you want to sort of look at the record and see whether we got this right. Uh, to what extent, I mean, throughout his career, in case after case after case, Steve Breyer always said, this strikes me as upside down. We're supposed to defer on questions of law, and then we're supposed to be really probing and, um, and nasty when it comes to questions of policy inferences, policy making decisions, let alone raw facts, where the agencies has, have all the comparative advantages. Isn't that upside down? To what extent, I mean, does, I mean that always made intuitive sense to me. What's wrong with that? Oh, I'd like to respond to my, my good friend and colleague. Um, I think that the proper uh, realm for Chevron uh, is where the law has run out, where, where Congress has delegated or hasn't thought about. I think the important part of Chevron is gap filling, interstitial lawmaking, and I think that uh, the, the most controversial part of that is where there's an implied delegation. But you can call them questions of law, but the difficulty is there isn't any law on the subject. And so somebody's gonna have to come in and, and fill that. And the way you can do that is you can either have uh, judges and agency general counsels apply the canons and say there's only one best answer. Or you can do what we do under Chevron, and that is say to the agency, okay, tell us within the range of things that are permissible under the language of the statute, within, within the limits that Congress has set, what are the policy reasons for adopting one uh, interpretation as opposed to another? And, and that can include statutory structure, statements of purposes, history, uh, all sorts of things. Uh, but then, as long as that's subject to review by the court and you have the input from the agency as well as review by the court, I just think that's a better way of doing it. I think that's all that Stevens meant. I think so, too. <laughs> I, I think, think so, too. When he could just sense later, was it Cardozo-Fonseca? He says that, right? It's yeah, a hard line, policy versus statutory interpretation, but that's the line we had right. drawn. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I remember before he died, Justice Scalia told me that he frequently told Justice Stevens that even though he wrote Chevron, he didn't really understand it. <laughs> <laughs> well, he certainly expressed regret about it. Can I, can I add uh, a comment uh, to this? Because I completely agree with uh, Don's point. Um, I was going to make it just, I don't think there's ever, there's sometimes law. But sometimes what we say is law involves the policy. And so that's why it's not as simple as that. And to this, but I wanted to add another point to the second part. Why are they doing so? Why does everyone agree? First of all, I didn't know that a lot of folks agreed on doing more hard look reviews. So sort of welcome, because I've been thinking about this for a while, and I, I didn't really think there was a lot of folks on board with this. Um, but so I want to defend it also, because um, I've seen it be portrayed as also a form of judges trying getting the policy reason and pushing back at the agency when they don't agree. And I don't think that's the right way to look at hard look review or other. And I don't think it does that. And I could talk about this more. But one thing that I do want to just 
say for just everyone in the room that arbitrary and capricious review is not about the judges finding certain facts like we think of that, you know, in your question sort of implicit, why is that the thing? Um, it's about whether the agency considered certain views and explained it. Okay, so we can still, the, there could be still disagreement about these views, are, but there's an explanation on the table that the agency has considered these aspects and made a logic, some kind of connection between the facts that they found and then what conclusion they drew and that there is not a gap there. And I think that's important because that serves a transparency role, accountability role, and it also, that's the, that's the key thing that ties this potential for stability because it will only survive to the next administration to the extent that it reflected that well and other observers seeing the transparent view, reasons that an agency went a certain way, people could speak on that and that could affect who the next president is, for example. Another question from the audience. Sir. Uh, Tom. It's Tom. Oh, nice. In a number of panels, and I think uh, Carolyn sort of alluded to this, is, uh, uh, is the change over time. We've got a lot of old statutes that are getting older all the time. Uh, and uh, issues keep coming up that are not addressed by these statutes. The textualist movement has as one of its principal tenets that the statute should be interpreted uh, in the way in which an, an ordinary reader would understand it at the time of enactment, okay? Um, so there's some tension between textualism and uh, the, the needs of society uh, over time as uh, reflected in new events and new issues that arise and so forth. One possible appeal of Chevron, I guess, is uh, the opening line in Justice Stevens' paragraphs about the two-step is to, he, he puts it in terms of the first question that the court needs to ask is whether Congress has spoken to the direct, the precise issue uh, before us. So that, that suggests a very narrow realm of authority for the court in engaging in statutory interpretation and a correspondingly large gap or space for the agency uh, to make adjustments over time. Uh, and the adjustments over time can be influenced by the president, they can be influenced by the executive branch policies, but also by Congress. Congress interacts with agencies all the time and threatens them in various ways with appropriations, cutoffs, and so forth. So. Um, what does the panel think about uh, how, how, in a world in which statutes are increasingly uh, aging and are not frequently amended by Congress, and in which the courts are now committed, at least in principle, to interpreting the statutes in their original meaning, uh, how does all that relate to uh, the question before us about the proper role of Chevron deference and or hard look review? Well, I, I think that um it makes sense, it makes a certain degree of sense to say with regard to a, a constitutional provision that it has the meaning that the ratifiers would have understood it at the time uh, because as uh, Justice Scalia pointed out, the ratification was really the, the act that created uh, and, ma and made constitutional provisions uh, operationalize them. I don't agree that that, is ne that necessarily should be carried over to statutes, particularly statutes in which Congress has set up a uh, regulatory agency and delegated uh, rulemaking powers to it. So I, I think it's really a category mistake to apply that version of textualism from constitutional situations to, uh, uh, to statutes and, and say, for example, that the Toxic Substance Control Act, which was enacted at a time when we all believed in the uh, linear no-threshold hypothesis. Uh, and now there's mechanistic evidence that uh, scientifically it's, it's incorrect because there there's redundancy in your DNA and I, mean, I could go into all of this. So I, I think that when Congress, uh, and whether or not this is actually what Congress intended, I think there should be a presumption that where Congress has set up an administrative agency and given it interpretive rights, including rulemaking, that it's perfectly legitimate for the agency to use them within the bounds, and where I'm kind of conservative, is I think it has to be within the bounds of a plausible interpretation of the wording of the statute. I don't think agencies can, can go outside a plausible meaning of the statute, but within the plausible meanings of the uh, statute, 
I don't think that the best meaning applying the standards of law that applied at the time the statute was enacted or the dictionary that was in, in place in 1970 when the Clean Air Act was enacted that were necessarily frozen to that. Then Judge Kavanaugh and I had a, a disagreement about this with regard to the long-standing regulatory prohibition of smoking on airplanes or commercial aircraft, um, to, which seemed to me to bear no relationship to vaping on airlines, which don't involve the smell, that don't involve a fire, and so on, um, and didn't exist when the prohibition was laid on smoking. It seemed to me appropriate for the agency to look at vaping and make, make a decision, but not to rely on a regulation that dealt with a phenomenon then not in existence. Yeah, I would agree that the agency should be able to either include or exclude vaping, provided that it had reasons, policy reasons for doing so that passed judicial scrutiny. Right. No, I, I agree. It didn't. It just looked at its right point. We already prevented smoking. This is smoking. Um, on the, on the uh, presumption of a linear relationship between dose and response below the threshold where we have any uh, empirical data from the lives and deaths of mice or rats, um, I, I, I don't think there's anything in the statute that would preclude the agency from changing its view on that, is there? I, mean, I think they could. They've got reason to believe now the sort you just alluded to, that that would be a false uh, assumption. I agree. Yeah, I mean, that's, they need to have the flexibility to update their own rules based on their, on their this relevant. Yeah, and, and, and I was, maybe, maybe that's not the best example. It was the first one that came to mind. But I was, I was referring to that to uh, essentially argue that I think that where Congress leaves these statutes in, in place over a long period of time, administered by agencies with rulemaking, they expect that the agency will, will use their rulemaking power to update the uh, conclusions in, in the light of evolving uh, science and, and other, other factors. And subject to the verbal constraint that you just mentioned. Right, and subject to the notion it's got to be within the uh, it's got to be within the uh, permissible interpretation of the statute. But going, going back to Michael Grieva's point, I think law is the ultra vires decision. You know, whether or not this is within the limits that have been delegated to the agency. And if it is, then I think that within those limits that have been delegated to the agency, including by statutory vagueness, I think that's really the issue, is statutory vagueness uh, a delegation to the, to the agency. And I, I think there's a good reason to say that it is. Uh, and if there is an applied delegation to the agency, it ought to be reviewed under an arbitrary and capricious standard, but the agency ought to have to explain and justify its exercise of policy discretion. And um, I just want to add on to that, because uh, I agree with everything that uh, Gentius Burry and Don was saying, but you know, many statutes, it's not, it's not difficult to see that they build in some kind of dynamicism. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't know if we even need to just make an assumption that it does. It's very clear that Congress it intended some kind of uh, um, um, emerging threats to be also handled. Second is that if Congress did make the policy decision, then that is off the table. And, and so there could be narrow circumstances where maybe we think wrong but I would say we would have to be constrained by that. And then uh, even if we don't think it's the right thing in light of today's, that might require a congressional change. And then I just want to bring in Justice Scalia's point that there's a scope to every ambiguity, there's a scope to a silence. And I don't, I don't think, uh, you know, I think um, Jonathan Mazur framed it really nicely about, you know, options on the table and that the amount of those options that are on the table might certainly change. Uh, we have time for at least one, maybe more questions. Um, so I was there. given the mic. Hi, uh, Susan Bodine. I actually do work with Don right now. So in the last panel, I think it was Eli Nachmani who um, suggested that we have um, deference against deference to agency expertise, particularly with how to interpret a word, a, a, a word that has a particular meaning in in a technical context, not that may not be the dictionary meaning, but it had meaning in a technical context. And it was interesting because I was also at the the PFAS risk meet, uh, seminar that or that Don was uh, attending and spoke at. Um, the scientists asked the legal panel, "Would it be helpful if the scientists created a lexicon?" of saying, well, when we see the word likely, 
This is what it means to us. When we see the word adverse, this is what it means to us. Yeah, when we see, uh, yeah, so, so something that could have a totally different meaning in a, in a risk assessment context, in a scientific context, than, than us generalists uh, may think of. And I, I was curious as to what the panel would think of that. Um, again, if, if rather than, you know, in a textualist approach, go to the dictionary. Instead, go to, well, wait a minute. What does this mean to the people who actually use these words and, and implement them? I'll answer that if no one else. Just go ahead. The problem you're identifying is, the, is just looking at the wrong dictionary. <laughs> and the, you don't need to construct the dictionary for the purposes of a particular case involving a technical field because the documents all, it's a common lingo for people on both sides of the issue. That's how those are the terms they use. I think it was just, I think it was a commercial boiler case I had a year or so ago, uh, which was full of terms that um, were explained in the briefs and were not controversial between the parties. I mean, that's, that's their job. It's, they, don't need to, they don't need to do more than that, I think, in order to make the, the record intelligible to the, a reviewing court. Um, I mean, they, you know, they, they, the same with the economists. I mean, the economists that disagree as expert witnesses use the same terms on both sides of the debate. Um, and they understand each other, and uh, their burden is to make it clear to the district judge uh, what those terms mean, and you know, it's, it's not, not a problem, I don't think. Okay, well, please join me in thanking our panel. It's a great discussion. Thank you. This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at AdLawCenter.